Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to another Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com. SB Nation's home for G5 football. Joe Lonergan, Eric Henry here with you uh, as always. However, today we're going to break with tradition a little bit and start not with a recap of last week's games as we usually do, but jump into the story on every G5 football fan's minds and in particular fans of Conference USA and the American uh, and dive into the fact that the AAC is expected to add six schools from Conference USA, uh, according to reports from uh, originally Yahoo Sports and seems to be confirmed by uh, sources of the Action Network and The Athletic after the fact. Eric, it has been so wild to see the twists and turns this whole saga has taken. Just in the last few weeks, we went from the Americans going to, you know, pick from Mountain West schools to uh, just UAB. And now it's six Conference USA schools in Charlotte, FAU, North Texas, Rice, UAB, and UTSA. Yeah, Joe, it certainly has been an eventful few weeks. I know for me personally, and I'll kind of save some of my opining and thoughts and whatnot until we kind of get into the meat of things, but just to kind of open the show here. And as you mentioned, we are breaking from tradition, diving right into this here. For me, once I I kind of saw the writing on the wall, once the Mountain West said no, I kind of saw the writing on the wall because I just didn't think, and again, you know, I'll, I'll save the meat of this for a little later on, but I, I just didn't think that the options from the Sun Belt, while the league the Sun Belt, the league may be having a better stretch over the past, you know, year and a half on the field. That's not how these decisions are made. It's not strictly based on on-field performance, despite what some fans may want to think, you know, when your team loses a game, it's like, oh, we're not going to be considered for expansion. We lost. It's it's not a one game proposition. Um, and yeah, like I said, once the Mountain West thing kind of happened and, and once you saw in specificity for me, Joe, where the schools at the American specificity or specifically where they were losing central Florida, Cincinnati, and Houston. I kind of saw that. And in one way or another conference, USA was going to get hit hard. Did I expect six schools? No, but I definitely thought that CUSA wasn't going to get hit hard. And that's where we are at. So it gives us plenty of room to dive into, you know, I'm definitely curious, Joe, what were your initial thoughts when you first saw the news and, as someone who, you know, you've been with this site longer than I have. And really quick, I, I've seen a couple people ask me, is Underdog Dynasty going away? 
no, we, we cover more than just Conference USA. And we'll cover any version of Conference USA. So Joe and I will still be here. The site will still be here. But uh, that aside, what were your thoughts when you when you first saw this? I know you've been with the site longer than I and, and you've been a part of the Conference USA space longer than I have. So I'm curious your thoughts. In terms of underdog, we're not going anywhere, one. I mean, I, you know, I started covering college football with Big East still had football. So, like... <laughs> we're, we're dating ourselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, no matter... And, like, the WAC still had football, actually, I think. So, no matter what shape the G5 uh, takes, it's always gonna, you know... Um, there's always gonna be a place for underdog, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That being said, no, Eric, I did not expect this big of a punch to CUSA all at once. Um, I thought the... The process was going to be a little more gradual. We knew that UAB, you know, we were like, not, we've been like 90% sure that UAB was going to join the American six months now. At least that's what it feels like. I kind of figured that one other COSA school maybe was going to be amongst the teams that got added to the American. Honestly, my money was probably on FAU just because I thought it was between FAU and UTSA, and UTSA is just too young of a program. At least that's what I thought at the time. Obviously, that's not what the American thinks. But to see this now, this is, it's just the fact that it's happening all at once. Like It's very easy to get overwhelmed uh, in this industry when you can't deal with things one at a time and very interested to see where they go from here. Yeah, you know, when you talk about... I guess we'll do this, right? And again, for our listeners, we apologize because we're kind of just doing this on the fly, right? You know, we've had time to gather our thoughts a little bit, but we didn't necessarily jot down how we want to approach this. So uh, I'm going to throw something out at you, Joe. Yeah. Of the six schools that are slated to leave CUSA, I'll kind of go in my sequential order of ones that I thought were most likely to leave to least. I would go with, mm-hmm. in, starting, this is in order, UAB, FAU, like you, I think we both have those in some form of one or two. Then I looked at UTSA in North Texas, three, four, Charlotte, five, Rice, six. So I felt that FAU and UAB, they had not only the football credentials, so to speak, but also the facilities, right? And for anyone listening and listen, by all, for by all means, our listeners, now more than ever, I know I want your feedback, your thoughts on, you know, these schools leaving because I've seen a myriad of thoughts across the board. You can't ignore, and I said this on Twitter to Jared Kalmus, I don't think if FAU gets the Smith Athletic Facility, which is their new new facility for all sports, but primarily football, if that isn't built in 2019, if memory serves me correct, I don't think we're here today. If UTSA doesn't get the uh, race facility built, that a uh, good job that uh, Dr. Lisa Campos did, the athletic director at UTSA, if that facility isn't built, I don't think we're here today. And when you look at North Texas, they've had great facilities for what, five, six, seven years, right? I don't know how long. Uh, I think Abigee Stadium is, what, seven or eight years old. I don't know how long their training facility um, has been open, but they have great facilities, right? So to that potential tap into the uh, Metroplex of Dallas, Fort Worth Metroplex is one that you can envision, right? And the American has shown a track record that they are going to prioritize markets over quote unquote tradition. And I'm emphasizing that point because I think that's one that, you know, I'm sure you will address when we talk about the schools that weren't selected, but there's North Texas. 
UTSA, I mentioned them. Uh, and also UAB, new stadium, new practice facility as well. So don't want to leave them out in that regard. Uh, Charlotte, that in my mind is, and I've used this in my writing, I think that's the proverbial gold mine. That is the, forgive the analogy because I'm a UCF grad, but I think that's the UCF of the group, right? When UCF joined in, joined the American in 2013, Conference USA, yes, they had uh, 1979 to 2013, 24 or 25 seasons of experience, right? So much long, much longer than Charlotte's been in existence. However, they only had 1997 to 2013, what, 16 years of Division One experience, of, F, excuse me, of FBS experience. And out of those 16, they had really only a handful of winning seasons at the time. It's kind of crazy to think back that this is UCF at this point in time, only had a handful of winning seasons. And they had an 0-12 year, George O'Leary's first year. So when you look at the resume, there were, they weren't that quite far off from Charlotte, a much bigger stadium, but that's really about it. So that's kind of the parallel I draw there. And then with Rice, I'll say that's the one that's kind of caught me the most, uh, at least most by surprise. Listen, we know Rice, I guess the analogy I'll give is if you're looking for a Vanderbilt, and I'm not saying that they're going to be Vandy in terms of just, you know, that wasn't meant as an on-field slight. It just is meant as private school, large endowment, um, good academics, big market. We all know that Vandy's smack dab in the middle of Nashville. Uh, same concept here. So uh, I think just that's just kind of my way of ranking my, you know, in terms of the one to six, like most expected to least expected and kind of laying out the case for how they got there. Yeah, Eric, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned market size because that's absolutely what the AAC is going for in this regard. I, I mean, you look at Charlotte, big market there. Houston, obviously. Uh, Birmingham, certainly growing. Uh, Boca, just outside Miami. Denton, just north of Dallas. And then, you know, San Antonio, uh, a growing market as well. So AAC opting for, you know, some schools that have the potential to kind of get some more eyeballs in there um, when you talk about replacing uh, the kind of markets that they're losing in uh, Orlando, Cincinnati, and um, Houston with the Cougars leaving as well. But then, you know, it's not just that when you talk about things other than current on-field results that were attractive about these schools, but it's uh, potential, right? What Will Healy's doing with Charlotte, it's hard to imagine why that wouldn't be attractive to a conference right now. Um, they are like, they're working so hard to, you know, just build that program up and they've done so very successfully the last, you know, few seasons, um, you know, ever since when they made the jump to FBS and things were just really, you know, choppy for a few years there. FAU obviously had some success there, but based on where they are and just the, <laughs> the talent that you just can get, I don't want to say easily, but the amount of talented South Florida high school football players who want to stay home and play for a program like FAU, certainly understandable. Uh, you know, North Texas, not the not the best couple of years for them. However, you know, I feel like every conference needs a team like North Texas in that kind of wacky offense that um, doesn't necessarily win every game, but provides a lot of entertainment value nonetheless. UAB, too good of a story there. UTSA, the rise there has been so meteoric <laughs> for how young that program is. I've talked about it before. Uh, it's 
just about a decade old and they're already, you know, where they are. I, I don't blame the AAC for wanting to, you know, bring that in to replace, you know, a Texas school getting lost and, uh, you know, a program like UCF getting lost as well. And, and Cincinnati even, and then rice, like, you know, I don't, I don't know that when you talk about teams in that part of Texas, that folks, you know, make appointments to watch every weekend. I don't think rice is beating out the likes of the Cougars and Texas A&M and Longhorns necessarily, but never underestimate what, uh, a school with an academic reputation like Rice can do for your conference. You know what I mean? Like when you look at the SEC and Vanderbilt, you know, who knows how much having Vanderbilt in there really inflates like the average, you know, GPA <laughs> of the conference. So I, I understand that move as well. You know, you have to, not that Rice doesn't obviously have the potential to bounce back in the major sports like football men's and women's basketball, baseball, et cetera. But let's be honest with ourselves. They're not really in that space right now, but always having that type of institution in your conference is a smart move. That's why the PAC, you know, it's, it's not why, but the PAC 12 has Stanford in that regard. The ACC has Duke, the SEC has Vanderbilt. Uh, the big 10 has Northwestern. So, you know, it, it's, it's a step in the right direction in that regard for the AAC, but I think the on-field product is going to suffer in the short term. First off, Joe, the, uh, the Wildcats much better than the rest of those academic schools you mentioned, but I digress. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you all, you make a lot of good points there. And I want to shift gears um, in, in a couple of ways. I think there's two things that undoubtedly we have to address, right? So before we kind of get into the, I don't know, we can call it the money, the finances of this, I do want to touch on if there was any surprise with teams that weren't selected. And of course, we're talking about, you know, mainly for starters, Marshall. We know their tradition that goes back, you know, almost three decades now of successful football, winning football. Uh, Southern Miss has been a very prideful program for a long time. You can look at, you know, Western Kentucky and Middle Tennessee. I know those teams. Obviously, they're getting left behind. And ODU was one that may have been a little bit surprising just because, um, you know, you and I, we've had people on this podcast who have talked about the, the fertile recruiting ground there at ODU. And they have obviously new, newer facilities in terms of SB Ballard Stadium, Cornblow Field, and some of the things going there. Norfolk is a very growing area. But let's keep it, in, you know, probably in the realm with the Blue Bloods. Um, I guess we could go with. Southern Miss, Marshall, you know, if you want to toss a Middle Tennessee or Western Kentucky, have at it. I know, you know, you being our resident Western Kentucky representative, I'm sure you're going to have some thoughts on that. So I want to kind of gauge your thoughts there, um, and I can kind of follow up after. And I, I think we have statements from all of those programs, athletic directors. So when you finish that, I'll probably lead with those statements and then kind of give my uh, two cents on those Blue Blood programs. Yeah, so you're looking for my opinion on like Southern Miss, Marshall, and Western? Yeah, I guess basically, yeah, well, we can scratch ODU. I guess Southern, Southern Miss, Marshall, and uh, Western, and maybe Middle, just as far as, you know, them being overlooked and how uh, the AAC, the AAC kind of went for um, market size over tradition in this sense. But you kind of touched on the market size, but I'd say, you know, you know the traditional fans are going to have some thoughts on, you know, them being overlooked and whatnot. So. Yeah, like you said, like with 
Hattiesburg, Mississippi, unfortunately, that's that's just not necessarily it's never going to be a huge TV market. And I mean, either way, however, I say this, there's going to be some Southern Miss fans who aren't going to like it. But there really hasn't been much national relevance there for a long time, a long time. So that one doesn't really surprise me as much. Um, And, you know, it's hard to kind of overlook, you know, when we talk about potential, right? The past couple years with Southern Miss in the last few years, the Jay Hobson era, and now with Will Hall, it's hard to imagine the AAC saw a lot of short-term potential there, right? So... Very well, you know, Southern Miss could find, you know, the next Will Healy or or, uh, the next, I don't know, Nick Saban for all I know and and bounce back in a big way. But there's nothing really there that you can really make like a uh, there's no real evidence there that you can point to to say like Southern Miss is going to be the next big thing the way that you can with UAB, uh, Charlotte, UTSA. FAU to some extent. Um, and then you also, it doesn't hurt their cause or doesn't help their cause that they're in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in terms of market. It just doesn't. And with Bowling Green, Kentucky, you know, the thing about them is when you talk about media markets there, you are not the closest city to Bowling Green is Nashville, right? You're not going to take Nashville away from UT or Vanderbilt or, you know, the SEC in general. You just aren't. And when you talk about the other teams within the state of Kentucky, uh, you know, there have been, you know, people who have been diehards of UK and Louisville who went to, you know, who didn't even go to the school for, you know, a century now. So you're not going to really necessarily make up too much ground there either. And with Marshall, it's, you know, it's a combination of the two. You aren't necessarily going to, you know, win the market battle with, you know, West Virginia or uh, North Carolina or, you know, some of the some of the bigger ACC teams in the state of Virginia either. And then also, you know, Huntington's not a big market either. So those three schools that you mentioned. While, you know, on the field, sure, you know, you can argue that they're headed in the right direction, less so Southern Miss, but Western and Marshall for sure. But, you know, unfortunately, there's just too many other things going against them in terms of the the criteria that the ACC was clearly looking for in this regard. Yeah, Joe. And listen, I think there's a lot of things that can be said. And yeah, for the full disclosure, I've had, you know, some conversations with some high ranking individuals, you know, at FIU, and I've seen some things on Twitter in terms of, Marshall and Southern Miss saying that, oh, you know, they'd be better fits to the Sun Belt. I don't think there's any doubt that if any of the programs in CUSA were extended an offer from the American, they would have taken it, right? And we can get into that in a second as to why it would be beneficial, in my opinion, for any of the programs. And this is not to slight Conference USA. They're just certain things financially that, in my opinion, um, make the move better, right? And like I said, we'll get into those in a second. But I do think I understand Marshall and Southern Miss fans gripe, specifically Marshall, because this feels like 
they get the short end of the stick of essentially a run Huntington, West Virginia, and there, there isn't bleep we can do about that, right? And I agree. But I do think that Marshall and Southern Miss are best suited for either what will be the current slash future incarnation of Conference USA, or, you know, we kind of have to address this at some point in time. The Sun Belt may make a move. And if that's where those programs end up, then that may be a better fit. Just because, Joe, when you look at <laughs> it's, you know, no pun intended, but the American Conference, they damn near are covering up half of the United States of America at this point when you look at their range, right? You look at Florida Atlantic. This isn't football related, but, but they will have to make a trip to Wichita, Kansas, <laughs> uh, in some certain non-revenue sports, right? And that's not going to be easy. And that's a conversation that we'll also have to have uh, in terms of what is remaining for Conference USA in terms of their layout, because FIU, their closest team that they could play is Southern Miss. Now, granted, that's always kind of been a thing for, for FIU, because when you look at you take away FAU, the closest school, at least in the East, right, is what? Off the top of my head, it's Charlotte. Uh, this is you know my poor geography here, right? But um, there are some mismatched teams in the new Americans. So I think just as a whole, I do think it's it's better. And um, again, we can talk about this. You know, I'm sure you'll have thoughts on the show. I think as Conference USA begins to realign itself, it gives it gives Conference USA a chance to be a little more regional. Uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing. John. I don't think I, regional. I don't think is a dirty word. I know in this new era of, of you know college football where. Uh, Maryland is in what, what is Maryland in the big 10 now? Right. And, and we've got uh, right. Texas A&M and the SEC. I know regional is a dirty word, but I don't think it's necessarily a dirty word in this case, Joe. So um, that's a thing. But the point that I was talking about in terms of finances that I think we do have to address is this, right? You know, conference USA's TV deal is one that has been reported only nets each program somewhere between 450 and $600,000 uh, a year. And when you look at the American, and I got to give credit to uh, Pete Dowell from Yahoo, who is also follow up on his initial reporting. It's been reported by him that not only are these teams making a jump to the uh, American, they the American's TV deal is not going to be renegotiated with ESPN, which, quite frankly, is shocking to me. And for those of you listening who may not know. The 12-year deal was signed in, believe, in 2019, and that was slated to net each American conference team $7 million, or $6.5 to $7 million per year in terms of uh, TV money, right? I thought for sure that deal was going to be renegotiated somehow. And in my mind, I think I tweeted this out as well earlier, even if that number had been renegotiated to 3.5, Joe, not many people out there are going to say, hey, all right, you know, we can't give you you know 12 times the amount of money you're getting. We'll just give you you know six times, right? And yes, there are things such as production costs that will eat into that. Um, but the fact that that number is not being renegotiated is, is shocking to me. And I don't think you can blame uh, any of the programs for choosing to get in on that. And, um, you know, the buyout for CUSA, again, as I've been seeing reported, somewhere around three to three and a half million dollars. Would love to confirm that um, with either Conference USA or another source. So we'll kind of keep following up on that as later podcast episodes come out. But uh, yeah, I mean, if that is, I, I had heard a fair, uh, excuse me, I heard a figure from a, uh, a source that said that the buyout figure was close to eight or $9 million. And I, I that number sounded high to me just in general. Uh, so I think the three to three and a half million dollar number sounds about right. 
uh, for teams to be out by, I want to say 2023. So listen, you can't ignore Joe. I know I threw a lot out at you there. So you're, you're, you know, probably like the little gif where the guys, you know, got like all the ratios coming out his head, but I, I, I don't think you can ignore the finances of sports and it was something that you have a lot of experience working in in sports business, uh, but I don't think you can ignore it in these moves here. Yeah. I mean, in terms of geography, this is weird. Like when you look at the the map of this new American, it's a little all over the place. And then when you look at what's left of Conference USA, it's not like it's more compact than it was. You know, you still have UTEP having to fly to Miami. You still have, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it's it's not less it's not more compact after this realignment than it was necessarily. So it, it doesn't necessarily help anybody in terms of travel in that regard. And even in, in non-revenue sports, like hopefully that TV money helps, but at the same time, <laughs> there's just, there's so much else you have to consider in terms of how folks are going to be able to, you know, just deal with the fact that, uh, Folks are going to have to like go to Wichita and, and do all this stuff for basketball. Um, what's interesting to me for Conference USA is I don't remember when they they moved to uh, Frisco when the conference did, but most of the Texas teams within the conference would be gone. I think you'd just be left with UTEP. So that that seems you know tough for the league to now be you know, basically have your office in a state where you only have one team and, you know, spoiler alert, you, uh, El Paso is not close to Frisco at all. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, you used to be at least within like a relatively short drive of North Texas in that regard. And then UTSA was relatively close, et cetera. So from a geography standpoint, you know, nothing makes sense anymore, but that's the way college football is. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think if with what CUSA is doing now, like you said, I think it makes sense to try to make as as compact of a geographic conference as possible just to save money. But ultimately, you know, I know UTEP wants to go to the Mountain West. I think that makes sense for them. We'll see if what the Mountain West thinks. Ultimately, you know, it it's one of those things where like I don't know how much longer CUSA can last. But at the same time, you know, you, we don't know until they make some additions of their own because one of the things that's on the table here is adding Liberty, adding James Madison, and then hopefully that kind of – that makes things a little bit more compact, but then you still have UTEP all the way out in, in no man's land. So hopefully, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a secret that UTEP really wants out <laughs> of COSA. So – I don't know if they'll accomplish that, but I, I agree with your your main point there, Eric. CUSA needs to probably focus on being a little more geographically compact there since uh, money's going to be tight for a little while. Right. And listen, we'll have to see what CUSA can do with the collective buyout money, which if that figures $3.5 million, my quick math times six says that is what, $21 million? Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be $21 million, all right? So that may be used to attract whether it's a Liberty, a James Madison, 
Uh, I know in a previous Underdog Dynasty article, I had thrown out maybe the idea of Jacksonville State, even, you know, a, a super hot take here. I'd thrown out the idea of West Florida. I, I, I mean, I put it to you this way. When I threw out the idea of West Florida, I didn't think Conference USA would lose six schools. I thought maybe they lose three or four. So that could kind of be like your backup option. So I, I, I don't necessarily know maybe that that is uh, viable right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think... You know, it'd be remiss. It, we'd be remiss if we didn't, you know, kind of speculate as as you did there in terms of where the league goes from here. And I did tweet this out last night. I do not think that Conference USA is just going to fall into the ocean. Um, now, of course, we'll have to see how certain things play out as far as the Sun Belt, right? But I do think the current incarnation, which is post twenty thirteen. That incarnation is basically dead, right? I mean, we can we can agree there. Um, but what this future incarnation holds, we'll see. I know, especially as someone who covers FIU, I'll be intrigued because where does FIU fit in the greater scheme of Conference USA without FAU? It's an interesting question. Um, but I think you can say the same thing about, as you mentioned, UTEP looking to get out. And you can say the same thing about a Marshall, right? At this point, it, <laughs> if you're a Marshall fan, do you really want to be in a league that could feature James Madison and, and uh, you know, a Jacksonville state who knows, right? I think if you get the Liberty that helps. So, so we'll see, but yeah, I mean, I think the last thing I'll kind of say, Joe is this, my initial feelings when I heard the, the move, I don't want to say it was disappointment. I, well, you know what? I think it was, I think it was a little bit of a little bit of disappointment because I do think, I've been on the record of saying um, in terms of long-term potential, I think UAB, UTSA, FAU, Charlotte, really all were gold mines. And it's a reason why I have favored Conference USA over Sunbelt playing the long game for a while now. And I thought that when you looked at those programs in relation to what the American was left at, just what they were left with, not what they could have potentially picked up. Um, I thought, again, playing the long game, that there was room for CUSA kind of long-term success. Obviously, that's not the case now. So uh, we'll see what happens. But all in all, you know, hey, we still got another two years <laughs> till, uh, till I leave, right? So we'll have plenty of time. And, and last thing, I will say this. It does make for an interesting 20-ish months, 22, 23 months of how things will play out uh, with the impending move to the American and, um, you know, how those teams will uh, kind of have their swan song in Conference USA. Yeah, like you said, we have until 2023 to really see uh, this current iteration of the league put on a great last show, for lack of a better term. What's been particularly you know, fascinating for me and for other perusers of CUSA Twitter has been the, the sequence of events. And <clears throat> based on the reporting of this entire scenario, uh, you know, and specifically, I want to shout out Brett McMurphy's article on Action Network about the situation. And, you know, I, I'm not going to read the article verbatim um, and go check that out for, for yourselves. But he kind of dives into there are just amongst the, you know, different uh, conference members, the different schools and between the schools and the conference office themselves. There has been a lot of. Uh, tension and a lot of egos clashing and that it's it's naive to say that some of these schools didn't and are not trying to make the jump because they just don't want to deal with CUSA anymore 
Because that basically based on the way that this is being told, that's definitely falling into it. And the way that, you know, McMurphy COSA sources responded to him seemed to back that up. Like you look at the the statement that McMurphy ends that article with, uh, this is what a COSA source said to him, quote, we will be much better without those six schools. The AAC will see their college football playoff rankings drop in the group of five. We have a chance to leapfrog them. This is a good day for COSA. Uh, I don't agree with that, really. I don't think the AAC is in an amazing place in the short term. I think they have a long way to go after losing teams that have had, you know, so much success on the field and off as, as Houston, UCF and Cincinnati, but there are some, there's some bad blood here and it's, it's naive to it. it, You know, we, we can't overlook that and the role that's played in this whole saga. Yeah, Joe, quite frankly, uh, listen, I don't know who that source is, but quite frankly, that's laughable. And I'm not doubting that the source said it. I want to make that clear. I'm not doubting Brett's reporting at all. I'm saying what that source said, quite frankly, is is hilarious. Um, <laughs> this is <laughs> Joe. That reminds me a little off topic here. Remember when LeBron left Cleveland and Dan Gilbert said that Cleveland will win a ring before the self-proclaimed the, the first time. I want to make this clear. Uh, when he left Cleveland the first time, that it will win a ring before the self-proclaimed chosen one does, right? And how you know he changed the uh, the price of LeBron <laughs> jerseys to seventeen ninety one, the year of Benedict Arnold, and <laughs> that's it's, yes, yes, I do. That's that level of delusionism. Uh, that's not a word. That level of being delusional uh, on the part of that CUSA source. All right, so there's that. Um, yeah, clearly there has been some bad blood, right? I think this is a matter, and like I said. I've heard from some sources within some schools who did not get chosen who've said that, oh, yeah, when you look at the the math of these things, I heard someone sent to me, said to me, uh, texted me, look at the numbers. It doesn't make any sense for us to leave. All right. Well, I don't know what numbers you have. I'm not privy to your books, but you can't just say, all right, this they didn't choose us. so We didn't want to go. Um, and that's what this statement sounds like there. To say that this is a good day, first off, I guess to even just dive into the specifics of the statement, that their rankings will be better than the American and so on and so forth. Listen, I don't know that you could make that argument. Joe, I'll ask you this. Could you make that argument if you left Conference USA with all six of those schools and you just left the American as is? I don't think you can make the argument that that quote is making. Am I off in saying that or what do you think? Uh, I, I definitely think the quote is off. I, I think you look at you know the way the AAC is now and will be until uh, 2023, even without uh, UC and UCF, yeah, and Houston. You know, I still think that's that's a league that uh, has has more potential to make the college football playoff. Not to say that any G5 team has a great chance of making the college football playoff. The fact that the Cincinnati is so close right now is a miracle, but that's another <laughs> uh, time for topic. Um, yeah, no, the, the, I don't, I don't understand what this particular source who gave that quote to McMurphy is, is smoking, frankly, like that, <laughs> that, that quote makes no sense. It's a quote from an ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend scorned, really. That, right. That's what it comes down to. 
I just don't, I don't understand that, that thinking at all. Like, and that is, you know, I don't know. I, I like the, the friends that, you know, I have both made, um, and working with COSA and, uh, you know, I, that quote is just like troubling on so many levels because I I've seen this in the professional world so many times when you just don't acknowledge a problem right, and don't work toward a solution, things are only going to get worse. So the fact that they can look at this and see UAB and see FAU and see all these schools, frankly, leave for the AAC, even though it's going to, you know, it's going to be a lot of work. It's, it's definitely not going to be the kind of money that getting to the American would have been, you know, a few years ago, uh, you know, at the height of the P6 movement. But I don't, I don't think they necessarily care. I think a part of the, you know, part of it at this point is absolutely, we just don't want to be in Conference USA anymore. Yeah, Joe, I mean, quite frankly, and I had said this to, you know, a friend of mine um, in a WhatsApp chat. If you look at what this is, this is essentially the American saying, hey, Judy McLeod, that little idea you, you had out there, tweeted out there, sent over uh, last week, it's a great idea. We'll just do it without you. <laughs> that's that's all it is. Um, so for that yeah. source to feel the way they do, and again, God help us if that's truly how they feel uh, inside, you know, if that's, I want to say, I won't want to speak for league office, but if that's truly how they feel, then they're not acknowledging an issue. But to my point, if it was such a great day, then why was the proposed hypothetical you had basically this now? Yeah, I mean, I I was racking my brain because this is this is from a movie, like <laughs> the villain taking somebody's idea and publishing it as their own. And I'm not saying. Michael Resco is a villain in this scenario, although I'm sure some people view him that way. Uh, what this is, you know, an indicator of is just CUSA didn't realize there was a problem until way too late. And even now, I'm not sure they really grasp the extent of the problem. And the issue that is, you know, the issue, the, the issue and the, uh, you know, hurt feelings or, or for lack of a better term that are clearly festering within a lot of their members because look, rice is going to get some money, but they're, they're going to get absolutely rocked in football. <laughs> like I did not see them making that. That was probably the most surprising jump for me. Um, acad- even with the academics, you know, and, and the argument that I made earlier in the show, it's, it's just wild that, you know, it, it's come to this point where, people just want to leave. People want to just do something different because I think, you know, it's definitely in the heads of a lot of these decision makers at these universities that, you know, I don't know if grass is greener on the other side, but you know, it can't get any worse over here. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I, I, not much more I can add, add uh, (laughs) to that Joe. So I am, I don't know. Basically here's to get off of the (laughs) negativity. I'm fascinated to see what does end up happening with teams like Marshall, like Western, like Southern Miss in the next 10-ish years. You know, does Southern Miss, you know, really go all in on trying to get into the Sun Belt? Does Marshall go to the MAC? Does Western Kentucky do something along those lines? I, you know, personally, <laughs> just just selfishly, I think it'd be fun to see Western in the MAC. I, there's no there's no offense 
offense in the Mac that I think really compares to what Tyson Helton is building. And I don't even know how, you know, with G5 football, I have no idea how long Tyson Helton will actually stay at Western Kentucky. But from a basketball standpoint, I think that'd be fun. I think it makes more sense geographically for Marshall. It doesn't not make sense for Western Kentucky from a geographic standpoint. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, you know, how many of these schools are actually going to, you know, be like, all right, well, you know, COSA, you know, until until the ship goes down, we're going to be the band on the Titanic. Or are they like, no, forget that. Let's let's, you know, the boats are gone, but let's let's find a lifeboat. Let's rip a door off. Let's, you know, let's do something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say you're interested to see what happens in the next 10 weeks. I'm interested to see what happens in the next, excuse me, uh, in the next 10 years. I'm interested to see what happens mm-hmm. in the next 10 weeks, quite frankly, um, to see what moves may or may not be made. So, uh, again, I guess we'll have to stay tuned, right? Exactly. It, it all, you know, it's weird when we all sat there playing NCAA 14 dynasty mode and playing with the different conferences and just, you know, making <laughs> – all these different weird combinations, putting, you know, Kansas in COSA, uh, you know, <laughs> bumping, uh, you know, UCF into the SEC or, or whatever we would do, or putting the UCF in any of the, the Power Five uh, conferences. It's like, eh, you know, this is fun to think about, but I don't know if it'll ever happen. And then fast forward to now and things are getting video game level wacky. So another reason why college football is amazing. So with that, maybe we should get into why most of you usually come to this podcast, and that is talking about recaps from this past week. Uh, Week 7, to kick things off last week, we had Marshall and North Texas. The Thundering Herd won that one 49-21. Basically what we expected here, Marshall scores 28 points in the fourth quarter alone. The Herd, uh, for me, are really learning to trust their run game and just establish control in that regard. Eric, Marshall haven't been the most disciplined team at times this season, but they're so physical on both sides of the ball. They're they're fun to watch regardless. Man, I need to break out the tea and honey here. I feel like I use up a lot of my voice in the, uh, in the early going here, right? Let's uh, try to get things going. No, to, to your point about the Herd, they're going to be interesting to watch you mentioned the physicality. I'm going to attribute that directly to head coach Charles Huff. I think this team is learning to take on his identity. And listen, that's not to say, I'm not trying to speak in some dumb cliche and say that they weren't you know, physical under Doc Holliday, et cetera, et cetera. But it's fair to uh, ascertain that as with each head coach comes a different mentality, different style that they try to kind of, for lack of a better word, impose on that team. Right. So I think as this team, you know, grows and takes on more of Charles Huff identity, it'll be interesting to see how they, how they fare and what that results in. And, you know, kind of my thoughts as far as North Texas is concerned, I tweet this out. It doesn't matter if it's Troy Refrit or Phil Bennett or Clinton Bowen, keeping points off the scoreboard has been an issue for North Texas, no matter who is the defensive coordinator. So of course, you know, you have that point right there, turn the ball over twice. Uh, doesn't help things from Austin Ani, but quite frankly, you know, he and I watched the majority of that game. He didn't really have a chance from the word go in terms of, you know, any real success. The, the numbers look a little bit better in terms of DeAndre Torrey uh, and uh, Ayo, uh, Ayo Adey. I knew I was going to butcher that one. Combined for over 250 yards. But that, again, is just really a, a byproduct of, you know, really the second half of that game. Because that game was, what, 35-7 or 42-7 at, at halftime. So a uh, good win for the Herd. Before we move on, speaking of discipline, Eric, 
17 penalties against North Texas in this game. When your defense is already struggling and your offense is a shadow of what it was a couple years ago, you can't have, you know, almost enough penalties to go the length of the field twice and still think you have a chance to win, regardless of who you're playing. I don't care who you're playing. 17 penalties is not going to get the job. Then I would be curious to see what is the most amount of penalties a CUSA team has taken on and been victorious in a game. I'll have to do the research on that and maybe have the answer next week. But yeah, that uh, that wasn't going to help their cause in trying to defeat Marshall. No, absolutely not. Uh, and then we had Western Kentucky uh, beating Old Dominion 43-20. to 20. So the story on the ODU side for this game was the fact that Hayden Wolf replaced DJ Mack as QB1 uh, from the kickoff, um, you know, apparently they uh, gave Wolf uh, the benefit of the doubt after, you know, seeing DJ Max struggle the last couple of weeks. Wolf finished with 26 completions out of 41 attempts for 327 yards and two interceptions in this game. So uh, you know, really not a bad game for him, though, uh, obviously some critical mistakes there that you can't necessarily make against an offense that is uh, capable of scoring as quickly as Western Kentucky's is, which they showed with five touchdown passes for Bailey Zappi. Uh, and then Jareth Stearns, 13 balls for 221 yards and a touchdown in this one. Uh, Stearns also earned a midseason All-American nod earlier this week from the Associated Press, so congrats to him on that. Uh, for Western Kentucky, a much improved defensive day for them, so hopefully they're beginning to learn from their mistakes in that regard, but Eric, I don't know how much of this one you really got to uh, to watch the def- like the battles in b- between Western's receivers, really b- between both teams' receivers and both teams' defensive secondaries in this regard was really physical. Like I, I was, they were not calling anything in that regard. That was that was wild. Yeah, Joe. As a matter of fact, I had a chance to watch this one from start to finish because I was really intrigued. Anytime I get a chance to lay eyes on the Western Kentucky offense, definitely want to get you know take advantage of that opportunity. And for listeners of this podcast, no, I've taken a keen interest in ODU and trying to see how they progress, especially since they didn't play football last year. So I really wanted to get uh, watch as much ODU film live, as much ODU games live as possible. You mentioned the battles between the you know, receivers and DBs. I think the biggest one was a battle between a former Hilltopper and Roger Cray. And basically, anytime he was matched up against any of his former teammates over there in Western Kentucky, and of course, you know some of those guys not being his teammates in uh, the Stearns twins, but nevertheless, um, definitely a, a very competitive matchup on, on the outside. Daywood Davis as well, you know, kind of the bigger receiver as opposed to the um, smaller uh, Jarrah Stearns and, and Josh Stearns. But yeah, overall, Joe, you mentioned the the QB switch. That was what caught my eye initially, the, that the onset, as reported by Ted Alexander and Andy Mayshaw, that Hayden Wolf would get the start. And this is where I think it's interesting, right, Joe? You can look at Hayden Wolf's career. It's basically the same thing that happened in 2019, where you know they went with the more athletic Stone Smart, who now is a receiver. And Stone Smart was a primary quarterback for the better part of eight, nine games until we had a chance to see, or I had a chance to see Hayden Wolf's first start live at FIU. And the passing numbers and the passing output for ODU just increased by, you know, leaps and bounds once he got under center. And that shouldn't be too much of a surprise because he's a traditional 6'5", 215 pound pocket passer. Now, the thing is, in Ricky Ronnie's offense, and I'm assuming most of our listeners will know that he comes from that Penn State kind of a coaching tree. And he is someone who likes athletic quarterbacks. When you look at 
the most success in terms of his offenses at Penn State has been when he's had guys who can at least, you know, use their legs a little bit, right? So that's where DJ Matt comes in and gets the job day one. Now, whether or not Hayden Wolf's athleticism has increased over the past year and change, time will tell. But if he can produce the type of, you know, just elusiveness, athletic uh, ability that, again, is desired for a Ricky Ronnie quarterback, it may be hard for him to give up this job. And that's no slight on DJ Mack. DJ Mack is still progressing as a passer in a way that Hayden Wolf isn't, or that Hayden Wolf is, is more progressed, right? So that'll be something to keep an eye on. But to bring it back to Western Kentucky, I mean, you mentioned it, right? The fact that Jarrah Stearns, 13 grass for 221, gets named to the Blitnikoff Award watch list. And I think, and I'm rooting for him, not just as a CUSA guy, but as, you know, when you look at the other uh, receivers that are involved in this race, they all are from Power 5 programs, big-time blue blood programs. So I'd love to see, I think, the last one that you can consider, quote-unquote, a small school guy is Randy Moss and Troy Edwards in 97 and 98. So would love to see Jared Stearns take home the award in that regard. You know who uh, Jared Stearns reminds me of quite a bit, actually, is Tyler Lockett, um, former Kansas State guy, current Seattle Seahawks receiver, uh, but just in terms of his route running, a uh, physical stature to some degree, although I think Stearns is a little thicker than uh, than Lockett was, and just his ability to make catches in traffic. Like I, you know, I, I understand that the whole point of you know transplanting what feels like half of the Houston Baptist offense to Western Kentucky was a to try to win games, but now that that's not necessarily you know, happening on a consistent basis or as consistent as people like myself would like, they're getting so many good reps to improve their draft stock uh, this year. And, you know, we, we knew that the chemistry between Zappy and Jared Stearns was going to be there, but it has been next level so far this season. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to watch because while Bailey Zappy, you know, doesn't necessarily have another year of eligibility, uh, Jared Stearns does. So to see the numbers that he's able to put up in his Western Kentucky career, pretty interesting to uh, keep an eye on. He may you know, get to the top of the uh, Hilltoppers charts, no pun intended, in just two years. Yeah, I mean, Bailey Zappi's, you know, has a good shot to be at the top of the Western Kentucky charts with only one year. So, in, which is crazy considering the passing offenses that have come through there in the last 25 years. Um, but regardless... We should probably move on to UAB beating Southern Miss 34 to zero. You know, it's unfortunate for Southern Miss. I think they were going to have a, a tougher season anyway, but with the injuries that they sustained in this early part of the year, it's really just not going their way. Um, only other thing of note here really is the fact that on the UAB side, Tyler Johnston played the entire second half. So Dylan Hopkins could rest. Um, apparently Hopkins just a little banged up. Doesn't sound like he's seriously hurt or anything like that per our friend, Evan Dudley at al.com. Uh, but, but good for Johnson getting to, uh, get back in there and, um, you know, get some of the old muscles working um, now that, you know, after UAB kind of built the cushion that they did in the first half. Yeah, of course, you know, listen, uh, they say, right. If you have two quarterbacks, you don't have any, well, right now this appears to be Dylan Hopkins job and Tyler Johnson is firmly entrenched in the backup. And that, listen, that has to be tough, right? You know, when you've been the guys been the starter for the better part of two, two and a half years, and you know, you're a veteran in your career, it's nice to see the fact that he's kind of accepting the way things are right now. And as you saw, you never know when his number will be called upon again. And as we've seen over the past few years of UAB football, 
his time could come rather quickly, right? It could be another four or five games or it could be the rest of his career. So good to see him stay ready and, you know, get some snaps and valuable snaps. But my big takeaway is Southern Miss, if they if they don't get their offensive line worked out, they could be on quarterback number four, you know, very quickly. You know, just the fact that uh, Southern Miss really took a, despite the fact that they had seven sacks, which was great on their end, their quarterbacks just were pressured throughout the day, right? And this has really been, it's been kind of shocking, but I guess, you shouldn't be surprised when you look at the level of relative instability of the Southern Miss quarterback situation that guys like Jason Brownlee, who again is a Juco All-American, former Juco All-American, and I thought, you know, was really primed for a breakout here this year. This year is truly going to be kind of that feeling out rebuilding year for Will Hall and Southern Miss, and we'll see what they can do. I, I believe that T Webb is also uh hurt as well, if memory serves me correct. So we'll see what the quarterback situation is going forward for Southern Miss, but just as a whole. You know, that offense really struggling um, kind of sucks, you know, for veteran offensive linemen, guys like uh, Arvin Fletcher and others who've been there for a while. And, you know, really with Southern Miss when they were making bowl games to kind of be in this rebuilding mode. But all in all, definitely got to give UAB credit. Grayson Cash having a hell of a past few weeks against the pick six last week against FAU. And this week blocks the punt and gets the scoop and score against UAB. Noah Wilder, 14 sacks, two solo tackles, a uh, Alex Wright, you've got two tackles for loss here. So, listen, that UAB defense really running on all cylinders, and it goes to show, if you don't have a potent offense, if you're just an average or underperforming offense, UAB is going to run right through you. Yeah, absolutely. We we talked a little earlier about the physicality that Marshall has shown this year, and that UAB offensive line has shown that kind of physicality for the last like three years. So they've got that. They've got the market somewhat cornered on that, at least in the West Division. Um, staying in the West Division, let's talk about UTSA blanking Rice 45-0. to zero. And we talked about UTSA fans' desire for the team to get ranked last week, Eric. And what do you need to do if you want that to be the case? You need to <laughs> beat teams down and if you can shut them out. So this is the kind of result you need to put up every week to get to that point. Uh, some of UTSA's wins have been close calls, but the, that was not the case here. And now UTSA is ranked number 24 in the nation. And uh, I'm sure our friends at, at uh, Alamo Dome Audible were uh, partying in the street when that announcement came out. I was actually wanting a live camera on Jared Kalmus throughout the game. If you remember, Joe, you and I went live for Twitter spaces and I actually invited Jared just to see if you know, I don't know what the cell phone reception situation is in the Alamo Dome, but to see if we could actually get him live because I knew that would be a very entertaining thing. So, Jared, as you're listening to this, keep an eye out for our Twitter space invite because uh, we want to see what you've got <laughs> live at the Alamo Dome. But all jokes aside, this might have been the most complete game that UTSA has played, in my opinion, just because they fact they, the fact that they jumped on Rice from the start, right? 17 points in the first quarter, 14 in the second quarter, 14 in the third quarter. The game was pretty much a blowout, or it was a blowout by the time the fourth quarter rolled around. Uh, very complete game. You know, Frank Harris looked good in the early going since Sir McCormick gets 100 yards. And the thing is the death, right? B.J. Daniels is the back of running back. He's a guy who started games for them. Brendan Brady, I believe, is their kick returner. He's a guy who started games for them in the uh, in, in the past as well, right? So just overall, a really complete game. And I, I want to say, who was the uh, – the so Corey Mayfield Jr. and Trevor Harbinson had pick sixes of their own. So, yeah, a really complete game for UTSA from the right side of things. That offense, you know, right when we think, okay, maybe they have something with Jay Constantine, they go up against a strong CUSA opponent. Of course, this is a 7-0 UTSA team. So, you know, it's not like they're going up against a 3-3 and three team. But 
again, it's it's not the fact that they aren't having tremendous success passing the football or offensively. It's the fact that it's eight of 16 for 36 yards type of output from the passing game. That's worrisome. So we'll see how that fares for Mike Bloomberg. With Rice, let's let's look at the rest of their schedule here. Um, if Google Chrome will cooperate in this instance. Um, okay, here we go. So following this performance for Rice, they head right to UAB. So they are basically in the eye of the storm this week, um, just waiting for probably another similar result. And, you know, you know, Eric, I'm, I'm just going to ask, does Rice win another game this year based on what's ahead of them and their schedule here? <laughs> Man, it's just so bizarre to kind of view it from that prism, right? Because when I – I'm not going to say I was sort of high on Rice making a bowl game, but I didn't think that we'd be in this stretch six weeks in where we're looking at the Owls and saying, do they even have a remote possibility of winning another ball game? And I think part of that probably goes to what we may have thought of UTEP entering the year. That's when I thought that would be a 50-50 game. It is not a 50-50 game. UTEP, as we'll talk about, very much the better program. In North Texas, what is probably going to be their best shot, right? And let's see what they can do offensively when, you know, they uh, – excuse me, um, North Texas heads to them at, a, at a Rice Stadium. But I guess that's the one. If, it's, if there's going to be one, it's going to be that game. Yeah, like you said, the uh, <laughs> the storyline heading into this season was which program is going to bounce back first, Rice or UTEP. And UTEP have proven that they are that team in a big way. As let's uh, let's jump into that now. UTEP, uh, wow. UTEP beats Louisiana Tech nineteen to three this weekend. UTEP are bowl eligible for the first time since two thousand fourteen, as they improved to six and one. Eric Skip Holt said it worst. Louisiana Tech offensive performance in years, but I and while that's true, I want to make sure that we give credit to this UTEP defense. Like they were all over the place. Um, in particular, uh, Jadrian Taylor. Like I think he's the current sack leader now in COSA, as I wrote about uh, a little earlier this week. But this UTEP defense, led by Praise Amahule, is just really spectacular and miles ahead of where they thought I thought they would be. Yeah, Joe, I'm going to, you know what? I'll take the UTEP angle first. I was going to go into tech, um, but I'll take the UTEP angle first. They deserve it. First off, bowl eligible for the first time in a long time, almost a decade. So congrats to the fans in El Paso. Congrats to Dana Dimmel and his club. You wrote about some of the ways that UTEP's really improving your takeaways uh, from this game. I wrote about them in my three things we learned in CUSA in terms of this being Dana Dimmel's five-year plan. And I got to give credit to Steve Kalpowitz, ESPN El Paso out there for the one who's you know talked about his quote-unquote five-year plan. Joe, this is what happens when you've placed the kind of emphasis on recruiting JUCO guys. And listen, not every JUCO, not every transfer player is going to work out, right? But Dana Dimmel, when he got to El Paso, made the assessment that they needed guys who would come in and contribute immediately. And you talk about Gavin Hardison from New Mexico Military Institute. He's a Juco guy. Uh, Justin Garrett. Of course, Justin Garrett's a number two receiver behind Jacob Cowing, but he's been a fine number two in his own right. He's a Juco guy, right? You look at, uh, uh, I believe, Jadarian Taylor is a Juco guy as well at the three and a half sacks, as you mentioned. So guys like, you know, even uh, Divon, I, uh, Divon Inyang, I believe he's a Juco guy as well. So listen they've really benefited from the Juco ranks of having guys who can come in. And once those guys have gelled 
And once they've been able to surround themselves with enough talent, enough game experience, uh, you know, behind them, we've seen what's happened. And I got to say this, Joe, before I, you know, talk about Louisiana Tech, there was a feeling amongst UTEP fans last year that they really got shafted by having the season cut short the way it did. And I'm not going to lie, I was a little skittish because I didn't think that they were necessarily going to make a bowl game. And I still think that this was really their year to kind of rise up and shine. But when you see this type of progression, you can make the argument that had they gotten those games in, maybe they do challenge for six wins. We'll see. Or, or, or you know, who knows? We obviously can't go back and, you know, look at the past now. But it's just really interesting to kind of make that cost-benefit analysis and think back to maybe this team could have been bowl eligible last year. Maybe they could be building off of that into this year's success. So uh, we'll see what happens. But as you mentioned, Praise Amahuli leading that defense. Jacob Cowing, one of the top receivers in the nation, in my mind, from Maricopa, Arizona. Uh, you know, really talented guy out of uh, Arizona out there. So just a great win for UTEP. And as you mentioned with Louisiana Tech, the three turnovers by Austin Kendall, he was under duress all night. Again, I had to watch uh, – I got a chance to watch the majority of that game. And you can't just say, listen, those three turnovers on him and he played a poor game. I mean, for sure, you'd like to have had those balls back. But really under duress, you mentioned the three-and-a-half sacks from Janarian Taylor. But Praise Amahuli also had three uh, quarterback hurries as well. So – he was really, you know, kind of racing for his life throughout the entire ball game. And Skip Holtz, he said with his own words, the worst offensive performance. And it, I could be prisoner of the moment, but it certainly wasn't great. Eric, I'm going to play a party pooper for UTEP a little bit here. We've talked about Louisiana Tech committing three turnovers in this game. UTEP had four. I can't tell you the last time that I saw a team commit four turnovers and not just win, but win emphatically. So, I, you know, I guess that's just a testament to how, you know, uh, good of a game the Miners had in this instance. But, you know, between the fact that they've, you know, turned the ball over 19 times in seven games, and, and then they've also been penalized 56 times for 576 yards, uh, which are the second highest totals in both categories for CUSA. I don't know if the the miners have a you know lucky charm on the sidelines, but in addition to the uh, just great uh, growth this team has shown over the last two years, there's definitely a little bit of luck too. You'll try to play party pooper, and I'll flip it on its head and say, imagine what this team could be if they played a complete ball game. You mentioned the fumbles. Deion Hankins lost too. He has had you know a little bit of a fumbling problem as of late, right? And I think he'll be fine. He'll you know get that worked out but it was from you know Deion Hankins and Ronald Awat your two running backs don't want to necessarily have them putting the ball on the ground because that inevitably will come back to bite you but if they can get those things cleaned up Joe we talked about entering this game if Louisiana Tech uh, or this would kind of be the real test to see where UTEP is being Louisiana Tech a team that's been a consistent winner in CUSA if they get those things cleaned up they can compete with the UTSAs and the UABs so that's almost, you know, I'll flip it on side and say it that way. We haven't seen, quote unquote, the best game from UTEP just yet. No, we have not. I am really eager to see what the true potential, uh, uh, what the final form of this UTEP team is, uh, to put it in like superhero terms. So that wraps up the week seven recap. Let's jump into some week eight previews, Eric, since we talked about conference realignment for quite some time at the beginning of this, uh, starting things off on Thursday with Charlotte hosting FAU at seven thirty PM Eastern on CBS sports network. 
FAU uh, minus seven uh, is the line in this game. Personally, I am going to take Charlotte for the upset. It will not be easy. It may not be pretty, but a night game on CBS Sports Network, which uh, Charlotte has not lost on this season, coming off a bye, I think they can make it happen. That being said, they cannot make the mistakes that they did against FIU, namely getting complacent in the fourth quarter the way that they did. Because this FAU team will make you pay if you, you know, take your eye off them. Well, yeah, you mentioned, and that was going to kind of be my point. You mentioned getting complacent in the second half. I, I don't think they're going to be in position to build a lead like they were against FIU. So that means they're going to have to be, you know, on point from the you know opening kickoff. And I, I think I'm still not ready to choose Charlotte just yet, but I think we're going to learn. We're going to learn what both of these teams are. For the end of for really for the rest of the year with the result of this game, in my opinion, because FAU also hasn't played their A game as well. You know, we haven't really seen a full outside the FIU game. And again, right now, everyone's playing their A game against FIU. We haven't seen a great game from start to finish from Florida Atlantic either. So I think the matchup that I'm looking forward to seeing is can Charlotte's run defense do it two weeks in a row? Two weeks in a row, excuse me. They did it against FIU, but FIU struggled to run again for the past four or five weeks, right? Uh, the Panthers are struggling overall. Florida Atlantic, when you feature a Larry McCambity, feature a Johnny Ford, they're going to make an effort to run the football. If Charlotte can stop them, then I think you know your prediction could be spot on. Again, I'm not ready to go there just yet. I think Florida Atlantic wins. I think Achilles Leroy is starting to really round to form and play that level of football that we saw from him in 2019 when he was you know a candidate for Defensive Player of the Year. And when you have guys like Evan Anderson and Jalen Joyner on the defensive line, you know this is going to cause a lot of pressure for not only the Charlotte running game of Calvin Camp, but Chris Reynolds as well, as far as trying to get back there and make plays. So give me FAU. Next up, we have UConn hosting Middle Tennessee Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, also on CBS Sports Network. MTSU minus 15 and a half heading into this one. I have to take MTSU. The Blue Raiders offense is slowly getting to where it needs to be, despite that loss to Liberty in their in their last game. And look, UConn needed some last-minute heroics to beat Yale this past week, which is a strong indicator of where they are as a program. And, you know, it's funny. Before, you know, the uh, whole realignment news got a little bit more solidified, and uh, if you if you take away the whole um, Nick Rolovich drama, the whole story of this year really seemed to be like, how bad is UConn really? So this last week, I think the fact that they finally got their first win against Yale is a pretty good indicator. I would like to see Middle Tennessee have two 100-yard rushers this game, Joe, from the running backs. And I know that's going to be a big wow statement, seeing as how you know 100-yard games have been very few and far between over the past three years in the running game. Shatan Mobley needs to go over 100 yards. I think Martel Petway or Mir Rasul, you know, one of those guys has to break 100 yards. This game shouldn't be close. I mean, I'm obviously taking Middle Tennessee, but my big thing is I just want to see them really hammer home the run game from the backs and get that going. And then we have UAB hosting Rice on Saturday at 3.30 Eastern on ESPN+. Plus. UAB minus 23. No question that UAB takes this. They're too good, and Rice is not on their level. Uh, UAB's defensive line is going to eat this Rice offense alive. We we talked about in past weeks how experienced that UAB defensive line is, and I think they're going to cause a lot of problems for Jake Constantine. Couldn't agree with you more. I'll keep it short and sweet. We've seen the struggles from Rice's offense throughout the year. 
they, they ain't going to get any easier having to go to, uh, you know, as they said, Legion Field. We know it's not Legion Field, as you pointed out on the UDD Twitter, but then to a protective stadium. Uh, give me UAB. Before we move on, when you, you, uh, you talked about me pointing that out on Twitter. Uh, people were talking crap about that graphic with the, the owl and the dragon fighting over the stadium and saying it, it looked you know weird or the dragon was from a PS2 game or whatever. Whoever Rice's designer is, don't listen to him. It was rad. It looked like a metal cover. You can design my posters if you want. Um, <laughs> but anyway, and then we have uh, North Texas and Liberty on Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Plus. Liberty minus 21 and a half heading into this game. Uh, I think this is going to be a bounce back week for Malik Willis after he and the Flames lost to UL Monroe last week. I do think North Texas covers based on how the Liberty defense has looked the last few weeks. Uh, they have some issues of their own. Uh, the North Texas offense, um, especially if DeAndre Torrey gets going, they they can put up points. So uh, <laughs> give me Liberty for the win, but I don't think it's going to be a three-score game as uh, as Vegas seems to believe it is at this point in time. I do think that Liberty covers. I think Malik Willis is going to come out playing with a vengeance, given the fact that you know when you look at the really what his competition for being the potential number one pick in the NFL draft was in Spencer Rattler. He's not even starter starting right now in Oklahoma. I think he's Malik Willis is going to come out looking to really show that the turnovers from the last few weeks were just a blip and not a trend. And again, North Texas has had trouble keeping anybody from putting up points on the scoreboard. It, it ain't going to get any easier at facing a talent of his stature. So give me the flames. Then we have Louisiana tech hosting number 24 UTSA on Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Stadium, UTSA minus seven. I think UTSA wins this one. I'm surprised the spread isn't bigger, frankly. Uh, Tech's offensive performance last week was terrible, and unless Skip Holtz has something up his sleeve that you know we're just not expecting, you know, I don't think Tech keeps this a one-score game. That being said, they have made a habit of being in one-score games this year, so I don't know, but... What we saw against uh, UTEP, this offense has some work to do. Yeah, I'm going to go out and say it. Potential, potential, potential trap game for Jeff Trailer's team just because you come off the high of the program's first ever top 25 ranking and you know the way they just really dominated Rice from start to finish. That being said, I believe they will win, but I'm just saying, you know, keep an eye out for UTSA. Maybe they, you know, it, it, listen, Joe, it, when you're dealing with 18 to 23-year-old kids, the emotional roller coaster has to be from going to being ranked for the first time in program history, and then you got to come out and six days later and play a game. It's one thing to you know be that team that no one thought could do anything. Now you're being looked at. So we'll see what how UTSA responds. I still think they win, but I think it'll be interesting. That would be wild if UTSA came all this way just to just to get caught in that trap in Ruston. FIU versus Western Kentucky at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Plus to round out the weekend slate. Tops minus 15 going into this one. I think this is going to be a similar contest to what we saw in the WKU game against Old Dominion. Western is going to score a lot of points. FIU will keep pace for a while, thanks to Max Bortenschlager's deep ball, in my opinion. But Bailey Zappi and Jareth Stearns continue their score all the points tour, as I've dubbed it, to uh, get the top's third win. Yeah, I'm really going to be focused to see Western Kentucky. 
can they come out and establish a defensive presence from the opening kickoff, right? That's something that they haven't been able to do. Even in the win against Old Dominion, they did force some turnovers, but ODU was able to put up some points in the end. I want to see if they can come out and, again, something that you talked about, Joe, can they stop the run from the opening kickoff? Devontae Price, it seems like he's really due. He's had four straight games of under 75 yards rushing. He feels like FIU's due as a whole, and they're going to make an effort to run the football, but – I still think Western Kentucky wins this game. That I don't think that outcome is really in question, but uh, I'm just looking to see if, as I put it last week, this is really the stretch run for Western Kentucky season. If they're going to make a push at CUSA East title, they got to hit, you know, be going on all cylinders and they can't have a slip up against FIU. No, they cannot. Um, based on, like we talked about uh, with the Old Dominion game recap, how physical Western Kentucky's defensive backfield is playing. Part of me wonders if, A, they'll try that again, and B, if the officiating crew in this game will be paying particular attention to that. Uh, With FIU's offense, obviously you have Tyrese Chambers, who's been on something of a hot streak despite his team's record. So, I mean, personally, I would try to get the ball to him as much as possible. But, I don't know. It's an interesting intersection of factors here that I think could make for a more entertaining game than people are maybe expecting. No, Joe, I will say this. It's an interesting point you raise in terms of the defensive backs. FIU does have bigger DBs and veteran DBs. When you talk about Josh Turner, Rashard Dames, you know, the Dorian Hall, 6'5", 6'4", 6'5", 210 pounds as a safety. Uh, you know, Dames as well. The uh, um, Richard Dames is a bigger safety at 5'11", 185, 190 pounds. So they will have the opportunity, but something, and I'm, listen, I'll get a chance to watch this one live, I'm really interested to see how those short and intermediate routes that the Western Kentucky receivers run, you know, it's kind of a staple of the air raid offense, how FIU's DBs are really able to compare with that or match up with that. Because it's one thing FIU's done, they've recruited well in the secondary. And of course it's not playing well this year. And part of that is due to just a lack of, you know, pass rush up front, but definitely interested to see that matchup. So it's an interesting point you raise, but again, I still think Western Kentucky wins this one. So uh, be interested, interested to see how things play out, but, uh, yeah, I don't think the tops or tops fans should be in any real danger. In agreement on that one. Looking forward to seeing how this week's uh, games shake out. Though it's weird. I think this is the first time, though certainly not the only time, first time this season really that we've gone into a, a CUSA slate where uh, people, I feel like the action is kind of a sideshow. People are just thinking about the whole conference realignment situation as opposed to what's going on in the field. Do you agree with that? I, I absolutely agree with you 100% in that regard. It, it feels like even us, right? It took us, what, almost 35, 40 minutes to get into breaking down the action. So I think this week, and especially what do we have, Joe, six games? If my math is quick math is correct, we got six games. I, I, I mm-hmm. think a lot of the uh, the talk amongst the CUSA, you know, Twitter space, blogosphere, whatever you want to call it, is going to be uh, – and, and quite frankly – I don't think you can ignore this with the broadcast. You have, you know, FAU and Charlotte playing Thursday night in CBS Sports Network. I, I'm sure the league would not like that topic to come up, but uh, I don't know how you can avoid <clears throat> on the broadcast either. So completely agree. Yeah, no, I <laughs> that uh, I really hope they don't put out some sort of gag order. That would be that would not be <laughs> the best look given everything else that's already come out about this whole situation. Uh, regardless. Uh, I guess one more thing on the on the realignment thing. Uh, if you're interested in hearing another perspective on that, go to underdogdynasty.com. 
and uh, read Dan Morrison's piece that he just uh, put out uh, on Tuesday morning. Um, kind of looking at it from like, you know, more of a on-field perspective of what these teams are going to add in the immediate, you know, in the immediate future. So if you don't think we talked about that enough, uh, you can go check that out. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Once again, uh, if you want to check us out more, uh, subscribe on Apple and subscribe on Spotify. We are at underdog dynasty on Twitter at J O E H I O underscore, uh, and at Eric C Henry underscore. And we'll be back next week with more CUSA talk. And who knows, we might even get another Twitter spaces going, uh, this weekend if time allows. We'll see Uh, happy football watching everybody stay safe out there.